Today is the first week of Advent. And Advent is pretty much if you take Christmas and instead of celebrating it for one day, we celebrate it for a whole month. We celebrate longer and we celebrate better. So if you love Christmas music, you have an excuse to listen to it all month long. For the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're looking ahead to an incredible historical reality that God himself came to earth. Jesus walked and talked on our world and history was never the same again. Every week throughout the whole year, we focus on Jesus, every week. We're called Gospel Life Church. Gospel meaning the good news of Jesus. So all of our lives are to be centered on him. And when Advent comes around, we really love to focus on it. This is an even more visceral reminder of what we celebrate all year long. Each week of Advent has a theme. Today's theme, week one's theme, is hope. We're looking ahead to an incredible moment of hope. I had a reminder this morning about hope. If you're watching the live stream, you might have noticed it started a little bit late. That's because there's four of us huddled around the computer, frantically clicking and turning things off and on again, trying to get the sound to work. We're all just scratching our heads. And as I'm sitting there, I had hope because I, I knew that it, there was one guy that if he showed up, he would figure it out. And sure enough, when David Holbrook got here, he walked up into the balcony. I followed him like two minutes later, and he gives me a thumbs up and like, yeah, I figured it out. Here's the, the simple solution. And if you're one of those people uh, scratching your heads, I can tell you uh, how he fixed it after the service. But it was this hope. I knew that if he showed up, he would, he would solve our problems. And we have an even greater hope than that because there's someone that we can truly trust in. It's not an empty, you know, like, oh, I hope this happens, but it probably won't type of hope. No, hope in God is anticipation of the inevitable. We can't do anything to make Christmas get here any faster or slower. You know, we can't wake up tomorrow morning and be like, decide, oh, is it, you know, today is December 25th. I know my calendar says a different day, but today is December 25th. You know, the same way that we can't control the days of the month, we can't control what God does. He does it on his own terms. So we don't need to worry. We don't need to fear. His future promises are just as sure as an event that's already happened in the past. In this season of Advent, we can be filled with hope for what God has done and what he will do. Before we get into our passage today, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your reliability. We praise you for the assurance of hope we can experience in you, both now and in the future. I thank you that every year as it starts getting colder and darker, we have a reminder of our source of hope. It isn't in physical warmth or light, but in a warmth and light that is far beyond what this world can offer. I ask that everyone who hears my voice preaching this passage won't hear the thoughts of Ben, but hear the words of God. Speak through me. May I simply be a vessel proclaiming the good news of Jesus for your glory. May this good news reverberate in our hearts and community this week, filling us with hope that can only come from you. 
Amen. Today's passage, chapter 8, is a continuation of chapter 7, which Jeremy preached last week. So what happens in chapter 7 is a delegation comes from the city of Bethel to ask Zechariah a really intriguing question. They ask if they should continue fasting during the prescribed fast. God had told them to fast during the fifth month as part of their religious calendar. It was a fast of mourning, to remember the mistakes that their ancestors had made, and to remember God's anger toward them for what they had done. They were conquered by Babylon, and all the leaders and skilled craftsmen of Jerusalem were taken and brought into exile into Babylon. God had poured out his justice upon them and prescribed a fast for them and their descendants to remember what had happened so they wouldn't repeat the same mistake. Those left behind in Jerusalem and those in exile held to this fast, mourning the destruction of the temple and mourning the exile. But now, God has brought them back out of exile and the temple was being rebuilt, so those that were in Bethel waiting for the end of the exile are looking around wondering, you know, do we still have to fast? It kind of seems like this whole situation has been resolved. Do we really need to mourn anymore? So they go to Jerusalem, where the temple is, where God's presence is, to ask Zechariah this question. And God, in typical fashion, doesn't begin by directly answering their question, but instead he goes deeper and he asks them a more important question. He says, starting in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? They were really good at observing religious holidays. They would have loved Advent. They would have been great at Advent. They were great at following the letter of the law. But just as they feasted for themselves, celebrating to have a good time, they also fasted that same way. Not to actually turn to God, but to puff themselves up. They followed the letter of the law, but ignored the qualities of who God is and how that transforms who we are and how we live. Like Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees, God is calling out their hypocrisy. So chapter 8 is a continuation of that. It's a continuation of chapter 7. And the Bethel delegation haven't gotten their answer yet. Instead, they've just been called out by God. And so with that, we're going to dive into our chapter. Our outline today is really simple. Three sections and three words. Fasting, feasting, forever. First section, fasting. Second section, feasting. Third section, forever. In this chapter, God is referred to as the Lord of hosts 18 times. That's a lot of times. It's like almost every single verse says, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is a constant reminder throughout the chapter of his authority and his holiness. He is in the heavenly realms, surrounded by a host of angelic beings that are worshiping him day and night. He's also Lord of a host of believers from days gone by. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, both currently and in the past, 
and in the future. But for a lot of people, it seems like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. That there's two completely different gods. Or, you know, maybe it's the same guy, but something really crazy was going on during the Old Testament, and he's kind of mellowed out now, and, you know, he's pretty all right. So, you know, when we read the Old Testament, it seems like he's angry, spiteful, and petty. And then we read the New Testament, and, you know, we see a God that we can better connect with. He's all about love and helping your neighbor now, and we think, you know, all right, I don't really know what was going on before, but I can kind of get behind him now. So if I just focus on the New Testament, you know, then everything will be fine. But what we see in this passage is a clear link between the Old and the New Testament. It's a linkage that is throughout the entire Old Testament, but it's simply more obvious in passages like Zechariah 8. It's there the entire Bible. In the entire Bible, it's there, and passages like this can help us to see that clearly. And it begins right at the beginning. If you haven't turned with me yet, turn to Zechariah 8. We're going to look at right now verses 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. He's jealous and full of great wrath. You know, these are adjectives that we might be tempted to shy away from, especially in applying them to God. You know, there are way more worship songs about God being loving and gracious than about him being jealous and wrathful. Yet throughout Scripture, we do see a God that holds his people to a standard. He created a covenant with his people, saying that he and us will be united together. And so when his people break their end and turn from him, he brings correction. And that's why he had instituted the fasts that the Bethel delegation is talking about. He had told them, because you turned from me, you know, I'm not happy about it. I'm going to bring correction. I'm going to let my temple where my presence is be destroyed. I'm going to let the walls of Jerusalem be torn down. You're going to be brought into exile. And then I want you and your descendants to hold these annual fasts to remember what you've done and its consequences. And they held to those fasts for 70 years. The biggest sporting event in the world, the World Cup, started last week. I don't know if anyone else has been watching it. I've been watching it a lot. And it only comes once every four years. So it's a big deal for fans. You know, the last World Cup final was watched by more than half of the people in the world. More than half of the people in the world watched part of the World Cup final live. And as big of a deal as it is for the fans, it's an even bigger deal for the players. You know, just like a Timberwolves player might, you know, play for the Wolves week in, week out. When the Olympics come around, they play for the U.S. It's the same way in soccer, where soccer players you know, are, are training at their club, they're playing for their club, they get their paycheck from their club. But then, representing their country at the World Cup is a whole different experience. Because for all of them, all of them, the World Cup is their childhood dream. The matches that they play at a World Cup wearing the jersey of their country are by far the most important of their entire career. 
Going into the final of the 2014 World Cup, arguably the greatest player of all time, Lionel Messi, had a chance to win the most coveted of all trophies. He'd won everything there else is to win. And if Argentina could win this one last match, this would be the final jewel in his crown, a World Cup trophy. However, they lost an extra time to Germany. Messi, he won the Best Player of the Tournament award. But everyone agreed that it was obvious from his body language, his facial expression. You could even see it in his eyes. You could see it in the way that the German players interacted with him after the match, trying to console him, even after they had just beat him. You could see that he would have traded that Best Player of the Tournament award for a World Cup medal in a heartbeat. Winning the Best Player Award was nothing compared to winning the tournament for his country. He didn't care if people thought that he was the best player of the tournament. He wanted Argentina to be the best team. If a player acts selfishly when they're playing for their country, the coach isn't going to bring them to the World Cup. They're going to sit on the couch, just like you and I, watching their country play on TV. Because if they play selfishly, they don't get the most fundamental aspect of playing for your country. It's not about the individual, it's about the group. When you're playing for a team because they give you a paycheck, you know, fans get annoyed if you're selfish. But if you're selfish when you're playing for your country, you have a whole nation watching, saying like, what are you doing? Get him off the field, put someone else in. In our covenant with God, it's not about us. We're not a singles tennis player or a rock climber or a bowler or a golfer or insert any individual sport. We're not playing a single sport. Every time we wake up and step on the field of life, we're representing God. The purpose of our lives is to glorify Him. That's why we gather here, you know, and it's not to sing songs of our own praises, but to sing songs of His praises. So if we in our thoughts, desires, actions, and words put ourselves above Him, make our lives about ourselves instead of Him, follow, you know, His laws or ignore His laws or denigrate His laws for our own pride, He is right to bring correction. Yet even in all the judgment that God brought to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he didn't disown them. He didn't end the covenant, even though he had every right to do so. And we've talked a lot here at Gospel Life about this really important moment that happens in Genesis. It's when God solidifies his covenant with his people. So he meets with Abraham, and what they do is they cut animals in half. And back in those days, when you were signing a covenant with someone, you would do this. You'd have these animals that were sawn in half, and you'd walk through the, between the animals together, and you'd say, if I break this covenant, let what has happened to these animals happen to me. Let me be torn in half if I am to break this covenant. But what happens is God causes Abraham to go into a deep sleep, and God passes between the animals together between the animals uh, alone. They don't do it together. <laughs> because God isn't like some, you know, the, the ancient tales of, you know, mystical beings or, you know, mythical gods. 
He's not like a siren that's singing a beautiful song to lure sailors in so that they'd, they'd die. God's the opposite of that. God in that moment says, is saying, if either one of us breaks this covenant, I am the one that will bear the consequences. He caused Abraham to fall asleep so that he alone, that God alone would be on the line for the covenant. The jealousy that's talked about in this passage, God's jealousy is like that of a husband whose wife has been unfaithful. You know, they say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy. And if someone is apathetic to their spouse's unfaithfulness, then it's a sign that something is absent, that love is absent. And since God is a loving God, he's a jealous God. And since he's a jealous God, he pours his wrath out upon that which causes his beloved's destruction. This brings us to our second section, feasting. Let's look back at verses 1 through 3. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. God's jealousy for his people caused him to allow the Babylonians to bring his people into exile. And now it's that same jealousy is, that's bringing them back. He wants what's good for his people. And this whole chapter is a love letter to his people describing their future together. Verses 4 to 5 provides a stark contrast to their past reality. In times of strife and war, children and the elderly are the first to suffer. These verses, verses 4 and 5, say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Not only are there children, children and elderly people around that are surviving, they're thriving. Those that are frail have survived into old age, and children don't need to worry, and they don't need to work to help their families survive. They're playing in the streets full of life and energy with their grandparents watching. What a beautiful picture. What a great promise that peace and prosperity will come to this previously war-torn, desolate place. In verse 6, God says, you know, this seems marvelous and impossible to you. You ain't seen nothing yet. From the east country and from the west country, from the lands of the rising to setting sun, God will save his people and bring them there to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This phrase, dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, is used in verse 3, first to describe God, and then it's used again in verse 8 and applied to his people. The damaged, fractured relationship between God and people is going to be fully restored. They'll be with him, and they will actually acquire some of his attributes. They had attempted to become like God by controlling their life, 
placing themselves in the driver's seat of their life, giving themselves glory for their own actions. Yet here, they'll actually become like God, but according to his plan. He will cause it to happen, and they will become like him in a true sense, not in a false artificial sense like they had tried to accomplish on their own. Instead of attempting to become a shadow of who he is, they will dwell in his midst. He'll be in control in receiving the glory, and they'll experience the greatness of who he is. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Verse 9 gives an an imperative that's repeated again in verse 13. And this paragraph is bookended by the instructions to let your hands be strong. God's people, post-exile, have faced challenge after challenge from the people around them. And God's plan to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem faced severe opposition. The Israelites needed to keep their hands strong in finishing the work, And they're receiving a reminder that they need to stay strong even as the work of building the temple is finished. This is an important reality that God's work, you know, it's not limited to abstract emotions or change, but rather that God's work leads to the complete transformation of individuals and even society. Let's look at verse 10. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. Before the building of the temple, back in the days of exile, there were no wages for those who worked. You know, this wasn't just high unemployment, because even those working didn't receive their wages simply because there was nothing to go around. Traveling was incredibly dangerous, and neighbor fought against neighbor. It was a time of economic, social, and spiritual depression. But verse 11 and 12 say, But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. These are totally different times. God has declared there will be peace and bountiful harvests. A grapevine takes about four to five years after planting before its grapes can be harvested. And in times of war and strife, a vineyard would most likely be destroyed. And in certain times, no one can afford to invest years of hard work into something that will most likely be destroyed before it produces anything. And even if it does produce something, it's just going to be a luxury crop. You know, if you and the people around you are starving, your first thought isn't going to be, So what if, you know, we plant these vines and we cultivate them for half a decade, and then after that we'll get these little, you know, juicy purple nuggets that we can either kind of eat for fun or we could turn them into some beverages. Like, no, your your first thought is going to be, where are we going to get food? You know, this type of long-term thinking wasn't possible before, but now it is. Those that had nothing will now possess all these things. 
As Pedersen puts it in his commentary on this passage, peace is more than the absence of warfare. It is the full experience of God's salvation and blessing. Peace is more than the absence of warfare. It is the full experience of God's salvation and blessing. The fractured relationship between God and people is restored. The fractured relationship between people and their neighbor is restored. And the fractured relationship between people and the earth and their work is restored. The same God that brought a curse upon them because of their rebellion now brings blessing. But why? What's the difference in the situation from before to now? You know, our gut reaction might be to scour this passage. You know, what are the people doing differently? What's their secret? What have they done to get an angry God to be a nice God? But if we look for the answer to those questions, we'll search in vain. The reason God is blessing them goes back to the beginning of our passage and what we discussed at the beginning. God hasn't changed. He still has the same characteristics. And they haven't done anything to change his stance toward them. Rather, it's he himself that decided the time has come to pour out blessing. He was jealous for them when they turned astray, and he brought correction. Now he's determined that the time of correction is complete, and they can experience with what life with him was meant to be like. The thus says the Lord of verses 3 and 14 are in response to his characteristics, who he is, not in response to their actions. Both times, God is pointing out how their ancestors provoked him to wrath. They rebelled, declaring through thought, word, and deed that God wasn't their God. So out of jealousy for his bride, he allowed the Babylonians to conquer them to show them that they can't receive the benefits of knowing him if they're going to reject him. Now that same jealousy is going to pour out blessing, showing his bride that if they turn to him, they will experience a transformed life. And this transformed life is internal and external. Verses 16 through 17 say this. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Through a reestablished relationship with God, truth and peace and justice will prevail. Devising evil against one another and making false oaths is now of the past, because God hates those things. In this new season of feasting, is defined by what God loves. And it's on the back of this point that God has really driven home, that blessing comes because of who he is, not what they've done, that the delegation from Bethel finally get their answer. In light of this new reality of returning from exile, of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, should they still hold to the fasts that served as a reminder of rebellion? This is their direct answer in verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. 
The fast of the fourth and tenth months aren't referenced anywhere else in the Old Testament. But we can infer from the context and the dates that they align with the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem in the tenth month. And then the eventual breach of Jerusalem's walls six months later in the fourth month. That was what began the exile. So these are fasts directly connected to the rebellion and exile. But these fasts aren't to be forgotten. They're not to push them into the past to, be, to you know, become a fleeting memory. Instead, we see that these fasts are turned into feasts. Mourning shall turn into celebration, sadness into joy. Our very own Matthew Holmes has taken some of the psalms and put them to new music. The talented musicians of Gospel Life recorded an EP of these psalms, which is now on a streaming service near you. And it's called Psalms of Gospel Life. Psalms of Gospel Life. It's a clever name. And last Sunday evening, we played through these, fall, these five psalms in celebration of who God is. We're going to be singing one of them to close out our service this morning. These ancient songs used by generation after generation after generation to worship God have new music that allow us to experience it in a new way. That's what God has done here. He's taking an old song and remixing it, like a sad acoustic song turned into EDM. They aren't going to forget the past destruction, but that past destruction has new meaning in new context because that destruction led them back to God and now he's pouring out blessing. Because of this, they are to love truth and peace, which are the opposite of the attributes in verse 17 that God hates. These celebrations are communal, pouring out joy, gladness, truth, and peace. Which brings us to our final section, third section, forever. In the last verses, we have two elevations of the celebration that bring them to the next level. The first is an elevation of scale, and the second is an elevation of grammatical tense. You know, nothing gets the people going like changing the grammatical tense. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This new reality isn't limited to Jerusalem. It's for everyone. The pouring out of goodness in these celebrations isn't limited to their immediate community. It'll go out to all nations. This will be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to make him and his descendants a blessing to all people. This is also a, a reversal of Babel. At Babel, People came together to glorify themselves, to see how much glory can we achieve through our own human ingenuity. When God confused their language and caused them to scatter. But here, God is bringing people from every nation and language together in one place to glorify himself. It's just this beautiful reversal of Babel. 
And the delegation from Bethel is now a model for everyone to follow. If you want to connect with God, you can experience his presence. People will tug on the robes of Jews and ask to go with them to be with God. You may have noticed in the Bible that, you know, towards the beginning, God's people were called Israelites, which comes from when God renamed Jacob to Israel. You know, that we, I'm assuming it was Jeremy. Someone preached a sermon on that passage in Genesis. You can go back and listen to it. Um, but beginning in the book of Esther, we see a new word, Jew. And this comes from Judahite, someone from the tribe of Judah. That's where the word Jew comes from. And this is incredibly important because here in this passage, people shall grab the robe of a Judahite and say, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. The hope of connection with God comes through the tribe of Judah. Our last verse, verse 23, says, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days. Previously in the chapter it said, in these days. Now we have our grammatical tense elevation. Now we have in those days. Our final section is looking ahead to the future, to an even greater realization of this promise, a time when God will fully bring all this to reality through the line of Judah. This is a reference to their greatest hope, the moment they had been waiting for for a long time and would continue waiting for for a long time, the arrival of their Messiah. Christ's arrival is the great moment that shows how our hope is truly in God. We didn't will God to come down. You know, it happened before any of us here were even born. He came down on his own volition because he was jealous for his people. He came down and took our rebellion, our declaration of independence from him, and he turned it on his head. Our attempts to glorify ourselves, you know, didn't bring what we had hoped it would. Instead of joy and fulfillment, it brought emptiness. But through the blood of Christ, paying for our mistakes, we can grab the robe of the one from the line of Judah, and he brings us to God. He brings us to the feast born from fasting that will last forever. Ephesians 1 through 3 says that we have every spiritual blessing through Christ. We can enter the celebration of what God has done because of him. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We enter a new covenant with God through the work of Christ. It isn't our own doing. It is a gift of God. And in response, we do good works. The good works don't come first. They come after in response to God's saving grace through Christ. Our hope is not in our ability to be good people apart from God, nor is our hope in our ability to be good people so that God will love us. 
Our hope is in the goodness of Christ. Like the ancient Jews, we get to experience God's goodness now, yet are looking forward to a greater reality, a greater fulfillment of the promise. When Christ returns, we will experience the full culmination of God's promises to bring peace, love, and hope. Every week, we come to the Lord's table and turn mourning into celebration. We turn fast into feasting. The cracker and juice at this table represent the body and blood of Christ. This is a reminder of Christ's great sacrifice for us. This represents the worst moment in history when God himself died. Yet it also represents the greatest moment in history. We celebrate it because it was at that moment that he won. He literally snatched victory from the jaws of death. And it is because of what he has done that we can enter into the presence of God. This is a reminder that we are saved by his works, not our own. We celebrate what he's done for us and look forward to when he returns. We have hope in his saving work now, and we have hope that when he returns, he will make everything right.